Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the presence of the ruler. The fool is appointed to great heights, but the rich remain in lowly positions. I have seen slaves on horses, but princes walking on the ground like slaves. The one who digs a pit may fall into it, and the one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. The one who quarries stones may be hurt by them. The one who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the ax is dull, and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. However, the advantage of wisdom is that it brings success. If the snake bites before it is charmed, then there is no advantage for the charmer. The words from the mouth of a wise person are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words from his mouth is folly, but the end of his speaking is evil madness. The fool multiplies words, yet no one knows what will happen, and who can tell anyone what will happen after him? The struggles of fools weary them, for they don't know how to go to the city. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We will read the psalm responsively. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The New Testament lesson today is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covet covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, who is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. 
For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning, it says it's from John, it's not, it's from Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. We are continuing in our series in Ephesians Ephesians 5, chapter 1, verse 21. If you'd like to follow along with a Bible, I would encourage you to do so, either paper or on an app. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have these blue Bibles on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, take one of those as yours to keep as our gift to you. So we're preaching through the entire book of Ephesians. One of the reasons that we preach through whole books of the Bible at once, And one of the reasons that that has grown so much in popularity in the last hundred years or so is it is really, really important to see the Word of God in context. It's it's kind of embracing what's what's known as biblical theology, that that every part of the Bible fits into this grander meta-narrative of what God is saying with His Word, the idea of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so every book of the Bible fits into that bigger meta-narrative, but every passage of, of the Bible fits into the, broader, into the broader context of that book. 
And so if you just flipped your Bible open to Ephesians 5 and started reading, it would sound an awful lot like a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. And that's all it would sound like. If you hadn't first read Ephesians 1 through 4, this idea of how God calls us to live would very quickly devolve into just some sort of moralism of things that we are supposed to do. And so if, if that interests you, if you're interested in moralism, just behaviorism, I would like to direct you to literally almost every other religion on the planet. Moralism is the belief that if you're good enough, God will bless you. And if you're bad enough, God will curse you because good people get good things and bad people get bad things. But this is not the faith that God has revealed in the Bible. It's very different. I'm going to pray as we open God's Word together. God, we ask that you would make this Word come alive, that we would truly live every day in light of the glorious redemption and salvation that you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. So Ephesians doesn't quite divide up this neatly, but, but for our purposes, basically chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays out the gospel and reminds the church of what God has already done for his people. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he talks about what our response is. And the order of those two things is really crucial. So first, we hear the good news of how God redeems undeserving sinners. And then we hear how to walk in light of that reality. So in chapter 4, he was speaking a little bit more generally about what the, what the reality of our life is supposed to be. And now in chapter 5, he kind of starts to drill down into specifics. But these specifics are never meant to be taken as if you are good enough, God will bless you, and if you are bad enough, God will curse you, because good people get good things and bad people get bad things. And so it's, it's therefore, and that's why the, the chapter 5 starts out, therefore, it's based on everything I just said, therefore, because God has done these things for you, how are we supposed to live in light of that? How should we, as Paul said in chapter 4, verse 1, how should we walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we have been called? And the calling to which we have been called is the church. It's all based on the same word. The church is known as the ecclesia, the called out ones. And so the, the calling, the kalesos, to which we have been called is the church, the ecclesia, because we are one body. And so all of us have that same calling, one body. What affects you affects all of us. One chapter earlier, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.4, 4, he said, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. What affects you affects all of us. What you do affects all of us. I've said that Paul sometimes urges the church towards unity for the sake of holiness. Here, he's urging us toward holiness for the sake of our unity. Because what each of us do affects all of us. So, three things to look at in this passage. The first is that we are called to be imitators of God. The second is that we're supposed to walk in the light. And the third one is what happens when we don't do that. So, firstly, be imitators of God. This is how he starts off his passage. We strive to be faithful in this life because God has been faithful to us. We strive to be gentle because God is gentle to us. 
God created us in his image with a role and a purpose. And part of that role and a portion of that purpose is to reflect his attributes into his creation. N.T. Wright uses the the metaphor of a a mirror placed at a 45-degree angle, that we reflect God's attributes into his creation, and we then reflect the creation's praise back to our Father. And so our our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness, our, our desire to walk in light of Christ is simply the Holy Spirit polishing that mirror more and more so that we can better reflect the attributes of God into his creation. And so everything is based on the idea of be imitators of God. Everything that Paul says after this. And walk in love as Christ loved us. So that's be imitators of God and be imitators of Christ. So the foundational command that Paul gives the church is itself rooted in the underlying history of the reality of what God has done. God rescuing us from slavery to sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so these commands that Paul gives us only make sense if those underlying things are true. He says this in a few other letters. He says, if there was no resurrection, if Jesus never rose from the dead, then we are fools and none of this makes any sense and we should be out having brunch. He doesn't say brunch, but you get the idea. But, he says, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then God's promise is true and God's power is true. And if God's promise is true and God's power is true, then God's commands are also true, and we should hear them. Paul goes on here to list a number of sins, and he expands on a few of them. And he says that they're not even to be named among us. Does this mean that none of the covenant family of God, no actual real Christian, does this mean that we do not still struggle with those sins? Absolutely not. Does this mean that none of the people who are in the covenant family of God even still commit these sins? Absolutely not. What he means here is that we can't get to a point in our lives where these sins are commonplace, where they're simply part of our lives, an accepted part of our daily reality, where they're just part of the background noise and the the fabric of our Monday through Saturday life. Because these things that Paul names are not part of walking in the light. Part two, walking in the light. This is from one of my favorite theologians, Mike Horton. He says, the world will tell us that we are autonomous. That as an individual, I am completely in charge, that I have the absolute right over my body and my choices and my life. And Horton says, I thought I was autonomous. I thought I could rule over myself and my circumstances in my life. I was, in effect, my own Lord. But now, he says, after becoming a Christian, now I realize that I have a new Lord. And so part of the life that's lived in a posture of repentance and faith is living in light of that truth, that we have a Lord and he's not us. So what does that mean? Paul starts to list individual things. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. These should not even be named among you. Each of these is a form of idolatry. Each of these was associated with gratifying the the, the lower or more basic instincts of self-gratification. We give priority to ourselves and our wants and our desires rather than giving priority to God. This is literally the definition of idolatry. 
putting anything in the place of primacy that God is supposed to have in our lives. When Paul was writing this, the, the Roman Empire in general, and, and the city of Ephesus in particular, was a hotbed of tolerated sin. And Paul is saying we can't, we simply can't live like that. Just because the culture that you live in says it's okay doesn't mean it's okay. Now the temptation when I hear that, the temptation when you hear that, it might be the same for you as it is for me. Just because the culture says it's okay doesn't mean it's okay. When I hear that, the temptation is to think of something that I would never do anyway, that the culture currently says it's okay, and say, well, thank goodness that's not who I am. Then I start to realize that I'm a little bit like the, the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. So I have to ask myself, what about, what about the other things? What about the stuff that I haven't carefully examined in my life? What about the stuff that our culture says is okay, that I think is okay, but that God says isn't? What do I do when I realize that that's not how God calls his people to live? So I want to I wanna look at a couple of these for a, a minute. First, he starts off with sexual immorality. What does that mean? There has been a tremendous amount of ink spilled over the last 2,000 years about what this word might mean. The word is pornea. He's not incredibly specific here, as, as he is in other places. And so all I can tell you is this. The historic definition that is used of this word has always been pornea is any sexual contact outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's just that simple. And if that sounds pretty broad and sweeping, it's because it is. Is that very restrictive? Does that limit our freedoms? The world would say that it does. The world of Ephesians would say that it does. Our world today would say that it does. The Roman world at the time of Paul would have seen this and laughed. What do you mean sex is only for marriage between a man and a woman? These Christ followers must be the most repressed prudes in the world. And Paul would say that no, the Christ followers were actually the honorable ones because they were the ones who weren't objectifying other people for their own gratification. They were the ones who weren't repressing other people to satisfy their desires. They were the ones who were not basically saying that a free person could have sex with any slave at any time and there wasn't a whole lot the slave could do about it. They were the ones who were saying that men cannot oppress women. They were the ones who simply did not take what they wanted because they wanted it. So you see how these three things might fit together. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. These are all ways that we take what we want from others simply to gratify our own desires. Impurity, which is a catharsia, a state of moral corruption, which is lying, cheating, stealing, gossiping, tearing down others to build up ourselves instead of building up ourselves by building up others by giving of ourselves at our own expense. And so again, it comes back to how can we be imitators of God? How can we be imitators of Christ? All of this is just an example of how did Jesus live? And then we can look at that and we can attempt to follow it. Covetousness, wanting what someone else has. And this can be the most insidious of all of the sins that Paul lists here because it's the hardest one to see. It's like in the Ten Commandments. Nine out of the Ten Commandments are, are actions, things that we are either to do or to not do. You can, you can see if someone's doing it or not. These are external things. 
But the 10th commandment, do not covet, you can't tell whether someone's doing that or not. It's internal. You can't see it. You can't hear it. You can't legislate against it. You can't enforce that legislation against it. But coveting also affects everything else that we do. I want something that someone else has. And so my attitude toward the thing that I want becomes twisted. My attitude toward the thing that I want, I start, to, I start to take that thing that I want and I start to slowly raise it up in my mind as something that might bring me satisfaction or security or wholeness. If I only had that thing, I'd be happy. And my attitude toward the person who has it starts to change as well. Resentment, belittling, wondering why they have that thing and I don't. And again, these are things that absolutely tear at the fabric of the unity that Christ has won for us. And these are things that, that dull up that 45-degree mirror that God has made us. This is not the way of Christ. It's not walking in the path of life. You remember that, that early Christians called their movement the way or the path. Paul is saying that, that living in a state of immorality, impurity, covetousness, Paul is saying that living like that is incongruous with the way as the, as the called out ones that God has called us to be. Verse 4, let there be no, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This word thanks, thanksgiving or, or eucharisteo, it means that instead of looking inward to see what our desires are and then how might we fulfill them, and instead of looking around to see what's out there, who has it, and how can I get it, we should be instead using our time to look upward and to give thanks for what God has given us. And we should be instead building each other up in that thanksgiving. Martin Luther said that the human nature, by, will, by, the human nature, um, by definition, is curved in on itself. Luther said that if we look inward to try to find our own moral compass, all we're going to find is darkness and despair and rot. So we don't indulge in the things that God has called us to avoid. And we don't make light of those things with foolish talk or jokes because those things must be avoided. And Paul says, and this is important, we can't tolerate Christian leaders who say otherwise. In verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. He's talking about leaders in the church here. And this is a constant danger. This is why the bulk of the wrath that the Bible's writers have is reserved for leaders within the household of God who lead the sheep astray. I mean, it, it, it's one thing for the world to say, hey, come, come jump into this filthy pond. The water's fine. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. Indulge yourself. But it's another thing entirely for a trusted leader within God's called-out people to say, hey, go over there and jump in that filthy pond. It's great. You're going to love it. Water's fine. Indulge yourself. Verse 7, do not become partners with this darkness. Verse 8, walk as children of the light. Verse, verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is not to say that Christian leaders are supposed to be scolds or nags, being prudish and shrill 
But what it does mean is that we can be like, we can be like the, the, the sponsor at a Narcotics Anonymous meeting who says, look, heroin is really, really bad for you. It's awful. And it's going to make you feel great. And it's going to kill you. And you kicked the habit once, so why would you go back to that? Please do not destroy your life. You know that nothing good comes out of it. Don't go back to it. This is basically what Paul is calling us to be. This is what Paul is calling all of us to be. And he's what he's reminding us of. The people in the church at Ephesus would have been very familiar with their surrounding culture. And many of them would have actually come out of that culture. And so Paul is saying, for the love of God, this is, you know how bad it was. Do not go back to that. He's saying that once we get out of the darkness, we can't go back to it because we have seen this light. We have the light, and so we get to, and this is not just have to, this is get to. We get to walk in this light. It's the liberty that we have by knowing the truth about who God is. A man named Lord Acton said that liberty is not the ability to do whatever we want whenever we want to do it. But liberty instead is the right to do what we ought to do. Paul is saying that some things are simply not part of walking in love, and some things are simply not part of living as Christ taught us to live. But what happens when we get it wrong? What happens when the heroin addict relapses? Let's look at verse 5 again, because this one will trip you up. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who, or who is covetous, which is idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Does this mean that anyone who has ever committed these acts is barred from the kingdom of God, is outside the bounds of God's saving faith in the life, death, and, death, and resurrection of Christ? By no means. Does this mean that even Christians who do these things are outside the saving work of Christ? No, by no means. If that was true then heaven would be completely empty except for Jesus and his angels. No, what God is doing here is calling out the unrepentant, willful, willful, persistent sin that happens when we live as though his word isn't true. A life lived as though God's word has no power or truth in it. So basically, it's a mindset that Paul is calling out. If someone is living a life that would indicate that the Bible is false, that God's word has no truth or power in it, then, then they clearly are not part of God's covenant community. It's definitional to who we are, that you think that these things are true, that you trust in Christ for your salvation. But for the one who recognizes their sin and wants to, to run from it, for the one who sees what they do and is grieved by it, of course there is forgiveness in Christ even for the one who struggles with these sins every single day of his life and is grieved by them every single day of his life and needs forgiveness every single day of his life because this is a mindset thing. Do you have the view that my actions are my own and my body is my own and my life is my own and I get to do whatever I want with it? That is not the path of Christ. But for the one who realizes that God's word is true and that his power is real, of course there is forgiveness and there is restoration. Paul is basically giving, here, giving us here a standard and a goal. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Walk in light as children of the light. 
That's the standard, and that's the goal. Is that possible all day, every day, until we die? Of course not. Now, there's a branch of Christianity that actually says that what's called sinless perfection is possible this side of Christ's return. Listen to me because this is important, and if you don't remember anything else that I said today, remember this. Those people are wrong. They're just wrong. I mean, it's just not true. Paul himself, the guy who wrote this very letter, urging people to pursue holiness, calling people to to hate their sin, to put to death their sin, and to flee toward Christ, this same guy says in another letter that he doesn't understand why he does the things he does. And he wasn't speaking of his former life as a Pharisee before he found Jesus and accepted him into his heart. He was talking in the present tense when he writes in the letter of Romans, I do not understand what I do because I do not practice what I want to do, but instead I do the very thing that I hate. And he said in what we think was one of his final letters, at the end of his life that he ever wrote, the letter 1 Timothy, he called himself the chief of all sinners. Basically, he's saying, I'm the worst guy I know. Not that he used to be the chief of sinners when he was a Pharisee and then God got a hold of him and then everything was bright and cheerful after that. No, present tense, Paul is saying, I am the chief of sinners. And so if you put those two things together, you realize that the idea of living a sinless and completely virtuous life, this side of Christ's return, is impossible. Does that mean we shouldn't try to pursue it? Absolutely not. Because we've been given a path and a goal. We've been given a model to follow, which is Christ. And as we, as we follow him, following the cross into the world, we know what we need to do. doesn't mean we're going to be able to do it every day. But the mindset of repentance, of being grieved by our sin, and of constantly turning back toward Christ needs to be our watchword. The life of repentance is an examined life. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. And so it's a lifelong posture. When Christ returns and when the heavens and earth are remade and all of us rise with resurrected, perfected bodies, part of that remaking will be that we will live in sinless perfection with our God. But until then, our lives are lived in the reality that we can never fully satisfy God's law, but that there is someone who has already done that on our behalf. And so in light of what Christ has already done for us, our lives are lived in that light, attempting to follow him. One final thing is avoiding impure behavior and pursuing virtuous actions. Is that the whole point of our lives? No, it's not. Our holiness that we are called to, that we are commanded to do, our holiness is not the point of our lives. Getting better and better and more Christ-like every day is not the point of the Christian life any more than profit is the point of a corporation. Profit is a necessary component for the corporation's continued existence so that it can serve the community. And in that same way, holiness is not our end goal, but it's a necessary outgrowth of our faith and it's a necessary component in the work that God has given us to do. It drives us more to God in praise and thanksgiving, and it aids our missional work as images and imitators of God into the world. This is, it goes back to the, the tax collector and the Pharisee parable. If, I'm to, if I look at these words of Paul, 
don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do that. If I look at that, if I look at God's law, and I hold my own life up to it, and I say, hey, these two things are a perfect match, fantastic. Then I'm, then, then I'm just like the Pharisee who checked all the boxes, who did all the things that he was supposed to do, and who said, thank you, God, for making me the wonderful man that I am today. Thank you, God. But we're supposed to be more like the Pharisee who looks at God's law, who looks at the standard that he has for us, and then compares that to his own life, and he says, oh, this, this is not good. This is not good. I need to do something about this. And then realizes that he can't. But that Jesus already has. This is something that a pastor named Rob Riddlebarger talks about a lot, the, par- the, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And that all of us are more bound to be like the Pharisee if we read the Word of God as something that we have already, if we read the law of God as something that we are fully empowered to do, then we're just going to be like the Pharisee. But if we read the law of God as a standard that we, can, that we should pursue, but we'll never be able to satisfy, then that leads us more into the posture of the humble tax collector who beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you've read the Bible, you know that God has been merciful to you. That the redemption that we so desperately need has already been won for us through Christ. And so our holiness, our pursuit of holiness does two things. One, when we come up short, it drives us back to Christ, further and further into His arms, because we appreciate so much more our salvation. And the second thing that it does is our holiness polishes up that 45-degree mirror so that we can more accurately reflect God to his creation as his image bearers and his imitators. If we're supposed to be witnesses to God's truth, but we constantly behave in a manner as if God's word isn't true, then what are we doing? If we're called to to care for the widows and orphans, to, to take care of the poor and the prisoners, but we live in a way that it looks like we'd rather exploit them or take from them or use them, then what are we doing? If we affirm the truth, that we don't need this world's riches because in Christ, we already have more riches than we could possibly need. But if in our Monday through Saturday life, we act like every other grabby and greedy person out there, what are we doing? Our holiness is not the end point of our lives. It is the means by which we do the work that God has given us to do. It's a missional component of our overall lives as worshipers of God and witnesses to his truth. And so it's why instead of pursuing the liberties that the world says that we are free to pursue, we pursue a different path and we walk toward the true light. It's why we build one another up with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know what the truth is. And so we've been given an example of how we should walk in light of that. Let me pray for us. God, the path that you have called us to walk is hard. Broad is the road and easy is the path that leads toward death. But hard is the road and narrow is the gate that leads toward salvation. And thank you. Thank you for Jesus, Lord, who is that 
who has passed through that narrow gate, who has impossibly won for us the salvation that we could never win for ourselves. And in light of what he has done, Lord, we ask that you would enable us more and more every day to put to death our own desires and to turn our desires, to tune our desires more and more into what you would have for us, what you would have for our lives, for your church, and for your world. In Christ's name, amen.